Welcome to episode number 153 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm the online editor and I also help out with social media. Today's show, we have quite a lot going on. We have feature presentation by Miles Welch, who is part of the government of the Northwest Territories, and he describes the challenges of mining in the Northwest Territories. Apparently, it's uh, prohibitively expensive for companies, and, and the population density is very sparse, and so it's difficult to get the right workers. So the government is trying to help out. So Miles Welch describes some of the things that the Northwest Territories government is doing in order to help stimulate things over there. This was recorded at our Diamonds in Canada Symposium at TMX in June. There's a lot of challenges out there, but it's a huge landmass, and one imagine there's a lot of opportunities. So if you're trying to think ahead, if you're a miner and you're thinking of untapped opportunities, maybe this is somewhere you start to think about. Also on the show, there's a hive of activity on the website today. We have a story, there's Argentinian elections. We have a new story on Osisco Gold Royalties, which is starting a, a new entity called the North Spirit Discovery Group. It sounds like they're going to start investing in and even taking over some mining companies. They made a bid for Barkerville Gold Mines. Of course, this has its own controversial things. So, uh, people like the pure play when it comes to the royalties, so sometimes investors shy away when they start hearing about these royalty companies starting to take the risk of a mining company, which as we all know is actually not insignificant. Also on the website, we have a somewhat controversial metals commentary on cobalt. Everybody's kind of the metal of the hour, I would say. So we'll take a look at that. Bell Copper, it's a really interesting story of this guy who, uh, Tim Marsh, president and CEO, and how he's chasing after this copper porphyry in Arizona that had split in half. He, he went a pretty unconventional route, I would say. He, he went through the libraries, and he went and by studying the works in the libraries, he ended up uh, getting clues, and now Robert Friedland is involved. So we'll take a look at that. And what else? We have a little PEA by Integra. We'll take a look at that. Probe Metals, also, they just put out a resource estimate. And Stornoway is uh, being kept on life support, speaking of diamonds. We're going to take a look at that story. Cisco Gold Royalties is involved in that as well. So we'll take a look at how they're restructuring and what the situation is there. And finally, we're going to take a quick little look at Odds and Sods called Surviving Soviet-Style Exploration. Ralph Rushton has given us a couple of these odds and sods, and this one is pretty good. You sort of see the dangers, really, of in investigating and going into some of these mines after the Iron Curtain fell into these Soviet-built mines. And you can find us online at northernminer.com and on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube the top of our stories today, we have uncertainty in Argentina with coming elections, and this is by Northern Miner contributor Tom Azapardi. He describes the financial turmoil that's going on in Argentina right now. It's leading to an election on October 27th, and President Mauricio Macri, is, who's more the business-oriented, right-leaning candidate, is facing off against Alberto Fernandez, who is the left-leaning candidate, and who is associated with Cristina Fernandez, who you may remember ruled Argentina between 2007 and 2000, 
15. She's running as Alberto Fernandez vice president. Even though they have the same last name, they're not related. But news of her coming back to S&P Merville, a weighted index of the largest companies listed on the Buenos Aires Stock Exchange, fell by almost 40%, while the Argentinian peso lost almost a third of its value against the dollar. So she is not popular with the business community, to put it mildly. There's a lot of projects in Argentina. According to the Argentinian Chamber of Mines, there's $29 billion of projects registered in Argentina. Macri has been trying to help out the mining community. He unveiled in 2017 a federal mining agreement, an initiative to standardize regulation and taxation of the mining industry between the country's 23 provinces. So you can imagine how complicated that would be for a mining company to not have standard regulation across Argentina, each province having its own specific regulations. And he was unable to pass that legislation with two provinces refusing to sign. And now it is uncertain whether this agreement will get the necessary approval from all the provincial legislatures to become legally binding. And further, making life difficult for miners in the country. There's a highly restrictive 2012 glacier law, which bans all activity on and around the thousands of glaciers and rock glaciers that dot the Andes. There's a lot of turmoil in the financial arena in Argentina. Last year, the Argentinian peso fell by 50% against the US dollar, forcing Macri to take a $57 billion loan from the IMF who, as he says, is not a popular institution in Argentina. One can understand uh, why people would feel that way, just with all the troubles they've had in the past. And uh, like one of the things that Macri did when he came into power, is, as a party notes, is he restructured the $132 billion of public debt that they had. This was something that, if you listen to Bloomberg, you know, before he got elected, every so often you'd get the interview with some bondholder or some someone who was analyzing the bond situation with Argentina. And there is a sense of hopelessness is how I would characterize those interviews. So Macri, to his credit, he at least he tried. He tried. So the election is October 27th. It looks like Macri is losing to Fernandez. But in the world of elections, a month really is a year. We also have a story on Bell Copper. Bell Copper hunts porphyry system in Arizona. And this is a pretty interesting story. I, I just want to touch on it because I it's just not very usual the way that Tim Marsh found his discovery. Uh, Tim Marsh is the president and CEO of Bell Copper. And he was able to find uh, some the beginning of a system uh, by going to the library and quote, I wanted to find the next big porphyry copper deposit in Arizona. So in the evenings, I would comb the mineral occurrence data and read old theses in the University of Arizona library. There were a lot of good dissertations on copper projects, but I was looking very specifically for one situation, evidence of a decapitated porphyry. David Lowell found one of the good ones, the chopped off portion of the Kalamazoo porphyry, Marsh says of the world-renowned exploration geologist. And Lowell found Kalamazoo in Arizona in 1965, and the ore body became a major mine for BHP. He's also known for finding other huge copper porphyries, including La Escondida in Chile. So Tim Marsh is walking in the footsteps of giants, it would seem, as far as uh, geological discoverers.
As he says, I wanted to do the same thing, Marsh says, of, of Lowell's success at Kalamazoo. I wanted to find a compelling example, stake it myself, and make a mine out of it. He's made a lot of progress on this. He's found some good results. Apparently, he got down to his last drill hole. It had some decent results, and he showed it to Cordoba Minerals, a junior with ties to Robert Friedland. Cordoba Minerals is 67% owned by HPX, which is Friedland's privately owned company. And he said they saw it and fell in love with it. So uh, Robert bought into it very quickly. He got in his jet one day and flew out to Kingman. I thought I'd give him the whole story, but he had a young lawyer with him, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Robert began lecturing this young lawyer about copper porphyries and gave him real high-level geological explanations. He deserves an honorary degree in economic geology. He knew exactly what he was talking about. Another big story on the website. It's our headline right now. Osisco launches North Spirit Discovery Incubator and bids for Barkerville. So Osisco Gold Royalties has created a new project development platform called the North Spirit Discovery Group. It is hoping that the resource development and finance company's first asset will be Barkerville Gold Mines and its Caribou Gold Project near Wells, British Columbia. So that's interesting. I mean, Barkerville had its share of controversies in the past, and they seem to have righted the ship. And now Osisco is taking interest. And But as we, I said in our introduction, it, this is not a typical move by Osisco. The creation of this group is, as Sean Rosen, the Osisco's chairman, says, this is a way to sort of, it's a, he sees it as a kind of accelerator that Cisco has pioneered over the last five years. Apparently, this isn't something new for them. They're just kind of formalizing it is how they're presenting this. Quote, we've been incubating projects and companies, and we are basically taking it to the next level. We see North Spirit taking on a significant role in the evolution of these assets while we separate the accelerator model from a Cisco Gold royalties, but maintain a direct drive from North Spirit into or by holding equity within the North Spirit Group, Rosen explained. So do they want to have their cake and eat it too? It would seem. It would seem. So, yeah, so it, is it a part of Osisco? It, it appears so, uh, but they are kind of formally sectioning this part off. I, I suppose it's probably very smart on their side to just, if you're going to start changing the model, you should probably create separate areas of the company for it. And so that's what they're doing. Yeah, so that's worth taking a look at. There's some analyst responses to the move. And yeah, it seems lukewarm, uh, but take a look for yourself. It's on the website. It's top story on northernminer.com. Also, we have Integra. They com completed a, quote, exceptional PA on Delamar in Idaho. And, uh, yeah, so nice to see a mine in Idaho come to life. As George Salamis, the company's president and CEO, says in an interview, the economics of Delamar are truly exceptional. It's pretty clear to us that we're looking at an asset that is a company builder. Whether it's a company builder for us, Integra, or someone else, there's a mine to be built here. As he continues on, there aren't too many assets of this quality left, certainly not in the Western United States. Deposits that are this large, this scalable, with this much upside potential in a tier one jurisdiction, and with all this accessible infrastructure, there just aren't many around. And the management team at Integra 
is made up of the former executive team at Integra Gold, which was sold to Eldorado Gold in July 2017 for $590 million. Also at Integra Resources, they are doing moves in the corporate area. The, the company strengthened its board with the addition of C.L. Butch Otter, who was the 32nd governor of Idaho from 2007 to 2019. As Salamis says, he's going to be pretty key to the growth of this company and unlocking the value in Idaho. This is one component we are missing at the company and board level, the in-state familiarity with the bureaucratic landscape and permitting. Welcoming a former governor was a powerful addition for us. One would think. So that was a pretty interesting move from Integra. And also, we have Pro Metals, and they have just put out a new resource estimate at Valdor East. And we've had a few stories on Probe, so you can sort of see what's going on. Uh, with these guys, if you go to the Northern Miner, you can see a pretty good assessment of what's happening. Uh, resources in all categories at Valdor East and their n- new Bellevue deposit uh, total 3.2 million ounces, up from 1.4 million ounces in the 2018 resource estimate, so more than double. As David Palmer, Probe Metals president and CEO, says, it's a very pivotal resource. This resource has crossed a threshold. With a critical mass of gold assets, Palmer says, the company can start looking at Valdor East as a potential mining project. And then finally, I just wanted to turn to these uh, Odds and Sods by Ralph Rushton, a surviving Soviet-style exploration. And yeah, there's some, yeah, and just some really classic pictures here. Also some armed Yemeni geologists. Probably the highlight of the article, though, it's near the end. Uh, it's all well worth going through, but where he accidentally he's deep uh, here i'll just read it right here one afternoon as he's exploring a mine site a couple of hundred meters in underground i stumbled and my foot went through one of the boards shining my headlight down i could see my right leg was ankle deep through a splintered board my foot had landed in an old cardboard box about two feet by one foot in size it was lined with a plastic bag and was full of neatly packed sticks of dynamite even worse The dynamite sticks had been there for so long they were sweating nitroglycerin, which had pooled at one end of the box, luckily not the end I'd stepped in. I knew straight away what this was. In the 1950s, my dad was sent to the western desert of Egypt for national service, blowing up old German munitions dumps and had described finding boxes swimming in the stuff. At that moment, I heard a crack from the tunnel in Daniel's direction. The same thing had happened to him, and he was now standing in another box full of capricious, Liquid explosive. So I'm just going to leave you. Uh, I'm going to leave you hanging there, and so you can see what happens at the end of that odds and sods by Ralph Rushton. It's a great one. Go just for the pictures, but stay for the story. And finally, on the website, I wanted to take a look at this metals commentary, which has gotten some comments online and on social media. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, whenever you're predicting uh, what's going to happen with the price of a metal, you're going to run into friction. This is by Denise Heckbert, contributor to Northern Miner, and she says, China's electric vehicle sales have declined year over year for the second straight month on the heels of uncharacteristically slow growth this spring, indicating that contractions in cobalt supply may be partially offset by lower-than-anticipated battery demand. And apparently China announced in March that they're going to be terminating key subsidies for smaller electric vehicles, and that this had spiked up sales before the deadline, as tends to happen. 
Sales jumped 85% year over year in March, and the deadline was in June. And then now sales have begun to dip. Sales dipped below 2018 levels for the month of July following the implementation of subsidy cuts. And this week, the association reported a 15.8% decline year over year in August new energy vehicle sales. Denise Heckbert says this trend, if it is prolonged, could impact cobalt demand and pricing. Batteries, particularly in electric vehicles, account for more than half of global cobalt consumption, and China is the biggest player. There's also an interesting relation. This relationship between cobalt and nickel keeps coming up. It seems that when battery manufacturers want to save money, they try and put more nickel and less cobalt in the battery, and Denise Heckbert Uh, comments on this. At the same time, demand is further reduced by China's preference for NCM811 and similar batteries, which stands for nickel-cobalt-manganese at a ratio of 8 to 1 to 1. So that's 8 parts nickel to 1 part cobalt to 1 part manganese, which includes more nickel and less cobalt than more traditional batteries. Despite being the most expensive input for batteries, cobalt is proving frustratingly difficult for battery makers to replace entirely given its power by volume and fire prevention capabilities. So while it will continue to be a necessary input for batteries for the foreseeable future, companies and scientists are working feverishly to minimize their reliance on cobalt. Also factors in supply, uh, Glencore, who we had a headline of two or three papers ago, Glencore has put its Mutanda mine on care and maintenance, and that's in the DRC after the government opted to uphold the previous government's imposition of significantly higher taxes and domestic ownership rules. And the Mutanda mine produced 27,000 tons of cobalt in 2018, which is 20% of the world's supply of the metal. So there's all sorts of stuff going on in the cobalt market. Vehicle demand is going down, but it sounds like supply is also going down. So Uh, Check out the article. Feel free to comment and give your say on where you think Cobalt's going. We're also, if you check our social media, you check our Twitter, people are also making their comments about Cobalt. That's what's going on. And now let's see how much Cobalt is. Let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices with our friends at infomine.com. And if you're ever looking for these metal prices that I'm talking about, just go to infomine.com slash investment slash metal dash prices. You can also just put infomine metal prices into Google and you will get this link. And so what do we have? So gold has popped back above $1,500. It's at $1,522.84. And this is on September 24th. Silver is doing quite strongly at $18.62 per ounce, which is almost a dollar higher, well, 75 cents, 80 cents higher than last week at when it was $17.86. Platinum is at $956.51 per ounce. This is a little lower than last week when it was at $958.84. Palladium is at $1,656.08. 
So this metal is just taking off. Last week was at $1,595.35. The week before was at $1,555. If you look at the one-year chart of palladium, it is in a full-on bull market. It is impressive. If, if you look 12 months out, it was at $1,000. Now it's at $1,656. This looks like it's a 52-week high. In March, it had reached a similar level. These charts aren't super high resolution, so it's a little hard to say, but basically palladium looks like it's taking off. It'll be interesting to see uh, what that does in the car market. I've been hearing just in passing, it sounds like new car sales are starting to decline. I've heard $30,000 is the average price of a U.S. car these days, but the used car market is on fire. Who knows how much these metals factor into all that and the pricing of these cars, but it's interesting to note that as these, you know, palladium apparently is a pretty important component for cars. Continuing on here, a copper is at $2.59, and this quote is from September 20th, and as well as the following quotes are from September 20th. Uh, aluminum is at 80 cents, and it's just stayed at 80 cents for the last three weeks. Lead is at 96 cents on September 20th, which is one cent higher than last week's quote. Nickel is at $8.15, which is above last week at $8.08. So it's not at its absolute high, but it's near its highs. And tin is at $7.45 per pound, which is slightly lower than last week at $7.84, but only slightly. Cobalt is at $16.78, so it continues to go higher. This is slightly above last week's price of $16.56. And so cobalt continues to go up and nickel continues to go up. So the price of these batteries, there's nowhere to turn. It's not like cobalt goes up and then you go to nickel or nickel goes up and then you go to cobalt. Another interesting thing about cobalt, though, and this sort of touches on our earlier metals commentary that we were just talking about. If you look at the 52 weeks on cobalt, it was near 30 bucks per pound a year ago. So it had come down a long way. It may be up dramatically since July, but in terms of the one year, it's actually still half the price, a little above half the price. So it's all relative to time, but it's having a pretty big move off this low. We'll see if it continues its recovery or goes back down. And finally, zinc is at $1.05. Uh, last week it was at $1.08, and the week before it was at $1.05. It's just zinc's sort of drifting over there. And those are your metal prices. And coming right up, we have Miles Welch, who is manager of Diamond Secondary Industry Development for the government of the Northwest Territories. And he is speaking at the Diamonds in Canada Symposium at the TMX in June. And it's a very interesting discussion. Again, mining companies find it prohibitively expensive to do business in the Northwest Territories. It's got a lot of challenges. It's hard to get a workforce. And so Miles Welch goes into what the government is doing to help to help address those challenges of mining in the Northwest Territories and specifically in relation to diamonds. So let's find out what's going on in the Northwest Territories. Hope you enjoy this. He's introduced by Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro and we'll see you on the other side. 
So uh, with that, I'm going to introduce Miles Welsh. Miles is manager, secondary diamond industry, with industry, tourism, and investment for the government of the Northwest Territories. His main focus is working with northern diamond producers and approved Northwest Territories diamond manufacturers to ensure that the government maximizes the opportunities from diamond value-added industries. And of all that we've just heard from Chris, I think this is the perfect tie-in to let Miles come up and tell us what's going on in Northwest Territories. Miles. Thanks very much, Anthony. Um, although I consider myself a long-time Yellowknifer, I moved to Yellowknife in 1985. I was actually born just a few blocks away in Western Hospital and grew up in the GTA. Uh, but it's, of course, it's always great to be back in Toronto. Just glad we didn't do this on Monday, of course. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take a few minutes to talk to you about exploration in the NWT, as well as a, a secondary investment, uh, a value-add initiative that we've been rolling out. I'm, of course, happy to take questions afterwards, but full disclosure, I'm not a geologist, so I may have to take some of these questions back to the team. Just down in the bottom corner, though, I'd like to note, too, that uh, the Governor of Northwest Territories and the City of Yellowknife are going to be proud to be hosting the 12th Annual International Kimberlite Conference in Yellowknife in 2021. So I'm going to touch base a bit on exploration, and you can see in 2018, there was approximately $109 million invested in uh, exploration in the Northwest Territories. The majority of that, $60 million, was in diamonds. We're quite pleased, too, our Mining Incentive Program, a program that started out at $450,000, has now been in increased to a million dollars and in 2018 350,000 of those subscriptions were invested in diamond exploration. I'm thinking too we also got the Northwest Territories Geological Survey and they track a lot of the exploration for us and you can see there there were 23 projects in 18 in the tract and 10 of those were diamond focused. I see they put the last bullet there uh, perhaps we should have put that one at the top the 2.1 billion dollars worth of diamonds produced in the Northwest Territories in 2018 making us the third largest diamond producing jurisdiction in the world behind Botswana and Russia. So I'll talk a bit about our diamond mines as well and I'll just go through this a little briefly. Of course we have the three diamond mines which have been mentioned several times, Divik, Gachokwe and the Akadi mine. So for Divik, the A21 pipe was opened in August 2018, I think it was August 20th 2018 formally and it reached commercial production in the fourth quarter of last year. That's going to help the Divik mine to maintain production levels through to their mine closure schedule for 24-25. Gachokwe, too, we're quite excited about. There's a lot of positive news coming from there. They're outlining additional kimberlites to the north and south of 5034, the possible extension of the previously drilled Dunsheet. And I think it was just announced last week, the Wilson kimberlite as well. So we're excited about this. This exploration success that's just coming down bodes well for a mine expansion at the Gachokwe mine. So Ikati as well, there's a lot of continued exploration efforts on their property. So some advanced exploration was taken with uh, the Fox Deep Underground Mine and the Point Lake Kimberlite, as well as the announcement of the Challenge Pipe in 2018. So there's some other additional diamond exploration going on up there. I had some notes on North Arrow, but uh, Dr. Jennings and Kenoff all took care of all those. So we do have Mountain Province and the Kennedy North Project still working. We've got the Diagare property with Arctic Star and Margaret Lake Diamonds. Margaret Lake Diamonds working as well, and the Bishop and the Rhombus projects. And what we're quite pleased about it is a number of these projects actually received support through the mineral incentive program. So if we look at here and we see the title as beneficiation, could that could be secondary industry or value add. The NWT has tried to optimize the return through our socioeconomic agreements with the producers, but we've taken it the one step further and also negotiating agreements to support the secondary industry. This term is commonly referred to as beneficiation. It's essentially the support of wealth creation in producing areas through diamond-related activities. And these agreements are quite common in the diamond-producing jurisdictions. You'll see similar arrangements in Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa as well. 
a lot of those are countries where the sole beneficiation region, that's just a territory. So I think I should uh, touch a bit on the background of what we've done under our diamond policy framework. And it was originally established in 1999. Actually, the, the primary focus of that was the development of a diamond manufacturing industry in the Northwest Territories. And it uh, actually coincided with the opening of the Academy Mine. So our agreements with the producers have them offer two approved Northwest Territories diamond manufacturers up to 10% of their production for manufacturing in the Northwest Territories. So under the 1999 to 2018 policy, the manufacturers were required to manufacture all the diamonds they received through these agreements in the Northwest Territories. And there were some early successes. I think you'll recall back in the early 2000s, there was a quite a boom, several factories opening in Yellowknife. But there's a number of factors, including the operating environment and the 2007-8 financial crisis that really racked the industry. And we realized that that policy, the way it was structured, had not been successful in allowing this industry to flourish. So it's quite clear, and I think everyone's aware, especially I guess from the exploration side, that the uh, NWT is one of the most expensive jurisdictions in the world in which to operate a manufacturing facility. Existing and potential manufacturers have always said that it's way too expensive here. The prohibitive operating environment is keeping us from being successful. I think, for example, if you look at it, uh, some of the analysis we've done, of course, it all depends on what size fraction you use, of course, but the cost per carat for operating in the Northwest Territories is between $350 and $400 US, compared to perhaps $100 in Botswana, and between 50 and 75 in India as well. So we knew we had to think of, of different ways to make things work. So we sat down and we sort of mapped out this vision that we wanted, what would be best. And so what we really wanted was a successful, sustainable, and diverse secondary industry. We knew we couldn't compete with India. As someone mentioned earlier, 90% of the diamonds in the world are manufactured there. We think we could create a, a diverse environment that would help support something. But we knew if we wanted this to succeed, we'd have to create the environment and what we had to do is a big change of thinking in understanding that manufacturing, mine cut and polish, can be a component, but not the key to the secondary industry success. So it was clear when developing this vision, we had to know what we wanted and what would be successful. So the last point there is talking about the vision is population growth and skill development. We're in a, a unique situation compared to other beneficiation regions where the government of the Northwest Territories needs to grow the population of the territory. So unlike other beneficiations where the primary focus is on skill development, we're encouraging population growth, allowing manufacturers to bring in uh, workers from outside the country to work in their factories. What we're excited too about is the diverse investment opportunities, including tourism development. The Northwest Territories is currently experiencing a boom in tourism. I think uh, in 1718, there were 100,000 visitors in the Northwest Territories with a $200 million spend. I think there's lots of opportunities there for manufacturers who would like to uh, diversify their investment as well. Diamond tourism, opportunities for these people coming through and seeing their factories and perhaps even some retail investment. Jewelry design's an interesting while we're kind of excited about that. There's been a lot of like a niche or artisanal development of a jewelry industry, especially with, with the indigenous people. It's booming quite well, especially in Yellowknife, but out in the communities as well. And we're quite pleased there was uh, one indigenous designer who just recently had her work featured on the cover of British Vogue magazine. So we knew we had to review the policy. So when we sat down and we created our vision, we took a look at what we had in-house. And there is lots of diamond knowledge in the GNWT, but it's clear that an international subject matter expert was required. We needed somebody who had a footprint across the industry and understood all the regions and all the costs associated everywhere. So what we were going to do was mandate them to review the policy and come up with policy changes that we could use to enhance the environment. 
We understood, of course, that an export provision would be critical to any success, but we're encouraging the consultant to come up with some other ideas as well. What other ideas are out there? What's a way to make an export provision work? What they did do was they did to undertake that review of other beneficiation regions, and they came back with a lot of data for us, including some of that cost per carat, understanding how beneficiation works in other regions. Of course, these beneficiation agreements are often quite confidential, but we had to get an understanding of what is required in the other regions and what can work in our unique environment. So we did that, and what the consultants also did was there was a lot of talking with, of course, with the GNWT, people that used to manufacture in the NWT, people that were currently manufacturing, are diamond producers, and they took this consultation all out across into, into Botswana, into India. WMD, uh, the Constell Group was the one we used, and they're, they're associated quite wide throughout the, the diamond industry, so they were able to get a lot of that uh, consultation with uh, industry experts as well. A lot of good ideas came out of it. Of course, we encouraged them to come up with uh, other ideas, but we, they understood and they made it clear that the adoption of an export provision for manufacturers was essential. Uh, but what they came up with was the idea of exploring the concept of beneficiation versus allocation. And essentially what that is, is you just don't have a manufacturer come in and start manufacturing and export X amount. What, you should, what we needed to do was come up with a way where we could determine the manufacturer's investment in the Northwest Territories and base his allocation for exporting diamonds on that investment. The larger your investment, potentially the more you can export out to your other operations. What they also encouraged was the uh, development of a high-skill, high-value diamond planning and lasering. And that's one we'd thought about before, but previously the NWT had always been mine cut and polished. But we're excited about that idea and we've had some interest in that and we're looking forward to further discussions. Another one they suggested was to revisit our branding strategy and I can say we're right in the middle of that process right now. We picked that up as soon as we completed the policy review. A lot of it's focused around our trademarks and of course the, uh, the polar bear diamond, which we'd like to bring back forth again. Another one they came up with for the GNWT to consider the concept of a combined manufacturing unit. And that's a, a complex where it's run by a third party and manufacturers contract out the manufacturing to help reduce the cost. The original proposal was to have the GNWT invest in the facility, invest in the equipment, invest in the contract with a third party. But our group was mandated to make this work through policy change, not through further investment. So what we do do is when we're talking with manufacturers, we bring that idea forward and we're trying to encourage them to consider that because there are facilities, there is space in Yellowknife where if they do come together, that could work effectively. Another one they came up with was the concept of a training center. And we do, I must say, we do like that idea. But what we have to consider is we're just sort of almost starting over and what we want to do is make sure if we, as we move forward, we make sure this environment is stable and successful before we start expanding out to other ideas like that. I think, I think that's something we can probably look at a little further down the road. Okay, so there's just some details on, on what Constell provided us in terms of an export provision and diverse investment. In particular, the diverse investment one, we were surprised uh, we didn't realize in talking with our trade team that with this 10% allocation that we've got through these arrangements, we'd have to be very specific around the diverse investment opportunities that manufacturers could be awarded. So what it does essentially, it does have to be have some sort of diamond focus, whether it's retail, diamond tourism, R&D, establishments of training centers and those types of things. We're quite pleased. Our minister was very supportive of what we were doing. So he approved some changes to the diamond policy framework that we announced last December. So 
we now can allow a manufacturer to export a portion of their allocation. What we did do is we had to work with our subject matter experts. Like I said, we had economists and trade people in our office to make sure we understood the value of these investments that the manufacturers were bringing forth and so we could assess it properly and we had to determine key drivers that we wanted to calculate this score. And the other thing as well, an ANDM or a manufacturer just can't bring forward a plan and say, here it is, that we set a minimum standard, that we, a minimum investment that they would have to meet in order to be able to export. To be eligible for that export, a manufacturer would have to complete an application and develop a thorough business plan that our audit team could review. For our matrix key drivers, I think with any beneficiation region, it always comes down to employment. That's critical. So what we've defined employment as people resident in the Northwest Territories. That's where we need the investment to grow the population. So for example, if you had a factory with a fly-in, fly-out manager, that doesn't qualify. But people living in the Northwest Territories, and there, there are formal definitions of residence through health and social service and these types of things. We've defined our own definition. So when the person arrives and starts working, they become officially a resident of the Northwest Territories under this policy framework. They're paying taxes in the Northwest Territories and so on. We would also reward them for any um, employment they would have through any diverse investment idea. They, we would reward them for their operating expenses, and the operating expenses are clearly defined as expenses that are incurred in the Northwest Territories, whether that's your labor, your leasing costs, uh, your taxes, your land, these types of things. Anything that incurred in the Northwest Territories invested there is eligible. And of course, we would award them 15 points for any diverse investment that they had. So it's based on a scale out of 100. You can score up to 100 points, but you don't need 50 points to, to be uh, allowed to export. As we can see here, any investment in the range that scores 30 to 54 points, now this is a, the number that caught a lot of people by surprise, we would allow a manufacturer to export up to 70% of their allocation. What, we can, what they can do then is bring, keep some of the larger size fractions in the Northwest Territories, manufacture them there, and potentially export out the smaller stuff for manufacturing elsewhere. So that, that's our key target range. Um, the, the most a manufacturer could export without any diverse investment is 80% of their allocation. And you can see the, the export gets quite high, up to 90%, and we'll see on the next slide too. If you're going to export 90%, that's, that represents an incredible investment, an extreme investment in the Northwest Territories, where you have 20 people working, plus 20 people working in a factory, 15 to 20 people working in your diverse investment opportunity, lots of operational expenditures, and a, and a great capital investment. So if somebody is willing to make that investment, we'll certainly support it. But what we see is a lot of our manufacturers, potential manufacturers, is coming through in that 30 to 54 point score range. That's the matrix we've developed. And so your capital expenditures can range anywhere from 250,000 to plus 2 million. These figures are all in Canadian, and where your operational expenditures would be a minimum of a million exceeding 5 million, 250,000 and up for diverse investment. And your operations can start with one to four people and up to plus 20. In this example here I have, for example, we have a, a, manu a potential manufacturer that's going to invest 750000 in capital, and he'll score 10 points. They'll have an operational expenditure between 1 and 2 million Canadian, and that's worth an additional 5 points. A small diverse investment of around 250000 gives them another 5 points. And then we get into the, the, to the meat of it, the employment, the FTEs. And they would say we'd have five to nine people working in our factory. They get an additional 20 points and another 2.5 points for their uh, diverse investment. That would give them a score of 42.5 out of the 100, and that would make them eligible for the investment. 
What we see here is the opportunity to succeed here because we now have the resources in our office where we have the DSI, the Diamond Secondary Industry Team, used to be quite small. There was just three of us, but we joined with the royalties team and taken on their audit team as well. So that allowed us to expand out and be able to approach this differently and be able to... Uh, to monitor this type of activity. So that's some, some information that we have, and I can share that with you. There's a bit of inf exploration information, plus a lot of detail on our diamond policy framework. What we've done with our diamond policy framework, which we found um, through some of the introductions is in, in that it's unique, is that all the documentation is public. If anyone is interested, they can go online, they can assess their investment through this matrix. Everything is public, and the manufacturers and the producers have lauded us for this transparency, whereas otherwise before agreements were made, after confidential analysis. Of course, we respect the proprietary nature of any opportunity, but the manufacturer can also have the opportunity to work in ahead of time and, and understand what we're looking for and, and what he can offer. So we're actually, we're, we're quite excited about the opportunity and uh, this policy framework amendments bring forward. Thank you for your time and thank you for your interest in diamonds in the Northwest Territories. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. I, it's uh, been a pleasure to put it together for you. And uh, yeah, if you like what you hear, feel free to share it with your friends online or give us a review. The much coveted Apple Podcast Directory review. Feel free to give us feedback there. And also, if you know ge a geology student, uh, feel free to send them. Also, email them this podcast. Uh, it's a nice way to just keep the issues at top of mind and just get a, maybe a slightly different perspective from the academic classroom setting. So anyways, we'd like to thank you again for listening. Until next week, take care.